Ladies and gentlemen, we take pride in presenting a thoughtful address by Ronald Reagan. Mr. Reagan. Thank you. Thank you very much. And welcome to History Uncensored. As always, I am your host, Seth Michaels, and thank you for joining me after the kind of longer hiatus than we normally have. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, it's just this episode, as a forewarning, is going to be pretty long. It's also going to be kind of incomplete, because I guess I just, I I want to get to other things. I really want to get back to my slavery podcast, um, especially with 1619 being released by the New York Times. If you haven't listened to it, it's really great. I would ch- go check it out. Um my series on slavery is going to be a little bit more in-depth than that, especially when we get to um, the Annabellum South. But I have to get there first. And to get there, I want to go through the rest of the history of slavery, and it's going to take a while. So I unfortunately kind of have to cut this Reagan episode a little bit short. Um, it's still going to be probably the longest one, but I, I just wanted to give you guys a forewarning. Also, my next episode, if you want the TLDR on Reagan, uh, I would listen to that one. It's going to be just kind of giving you a a very short snippet breakdown of kind of what the last three episodes, including this one, have really been about and really why Reagan is, at this point, the penultimate history's idiot. So I appreciate you sticking around and checking us out. And to all the new listeners, I really appreciate you out there. And if you've enjoyed listening to this show and you like history, stay here, check us out, rate and review us. It really helps me out so much. And when I say us, I mean me. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I put a lot of work into this show. Um, everything I do from the website to the editing to hosting, everything is done by me um, in my home. So I appreciate all of you guys. It means a lot to me that you're there. Enough with that garbage. Like I said, we're here, History Uncensored. Let's get right fucking into it. We're going to go over Remembering Reagan, Episode 3, History's Idiots, and we're going to focus on corruption, scandals, and overall... Dumb fuckedness. Twat waffling. I don't know. He's. I'm done. I'm I'm done with Reagan. And not because. I'm done with Reagan because it makes me angry. I, I guess that's the other reason I want to kind of skip forward into the future a little bit. Is because this topic makes me so angry. And I've said it before in the last two episodes, but when you look back at this and and you project what the 80s meant for the United States as a whole, it's really depressing. Um, But enough of that. Okay, we're going to get right into it. Here we go. Ronald Reagan. By the end of his term, 138 Reagan administration officials had been convicted had been indicted or had been the subject of official investigations for official misconduct or criminal violations. 
in the broader sense, in terms of the total number of officials involved, the record of his administration was the worst ever. Absolutely insane. During during President Reagan's time, he presided over significant scandals and debacles. And some of these I'll be going over more in depth. Other ones I'm going to be leaving up to you guys to do some of the research. Um, I really, like I said, I had to cut it short. Otherwise, this episode would have been five hours long. The first one is the Iran-Contra affair. And I will be going into a pretty good depth into this. Uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development grant rigging, lobbying scandals, EPA scandals, debate gate, WedTech, Operation Illwind, the big sleep, the savings and loan crisis. And I'm going to end it today with the nuclear war scare, which if you haven't heard of, curled my testicles. It, <laughs> literally terrifying to think about what almost happened. So that's the broader list of what we're going to be going into. And we're going to start with the Iran-Contra affair. If you lived during this time, you might remember the Iran-Contra affair. And if you haven't, you probably don't know shit about it. Or maybe you read an article at some point or another. I doubt it gave you all of the facts. Well, that's what I'm going to be here doing. You know, just jabbing you with history right in your face. And the lasting memory I have of this research are just a few of Reagan's words. I don't recall that. Or, sorry, I can't recall. And those were his words when he was being... When he was subpoenaed, you know, and he was taken into court and asked what happened during the the Iran-Contra affair. And Reagan was just like, I can't remember that shit. That was so long ago, like six years ago. Granted, granted, that was in like 1992. And in 1994, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So, I mean, and there were some indications that he was cognitively impaired during his presidency. It's a really good thing to have a cognitively impaired president in the United States. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything more about our current administration other than that. The common ingredients of the Iran and Contra policies were secrecy, deception, disdain for the law. The United States simultaneously pursued two contradictory foreign policies, a public one and a secret one, kind of shoved under the table of, you know, like, weapons being sold to enemies of the state or terrorists. Yeah, we'll just sweep that under there. We don't need to worry about it. Um, we'll, we'll let somebody else deal with that. Uh, and, and that came from the report of the congressional committees investigating the Iran-Contra affair. Not the sweeping under the rug part, that was me, but the first part, the, the coherent part. The most well-known and politically damaging of the scandals of Reagan's era came to light in November 1986, when Ronald Reagan conceded that the United States had sold weapons to the Islamic Republic of Iran, 
as part of a largely unsuccessful effort to secure the release of six U.S. citizens being held hostage in Lebanon. It was also disclosed that some of the money from the arms deal with Iran had been covertly and illegally funded, funneled into a fund to aid the right-wing Contra's counter-revolutionary groups seeking to overthrow the socialist Sandinista government of Nicaragua. The Iran-Contra affair, as it became known, did serious damage to the Reagan presidency. The investigations were effectively halted when President Bush, Reagan's vice president, pardoned Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger before his trial began. Just some points about some of the people involved real quick, and then I'm going to get much deeper into this. We're going to... We're going to go full force into Iran-Contra and blow your minds a bit. Casper Weinberger. I just mentioned him. He was the United States Secretary of Defense, and he was pardoned before the trial by George H.W. Bush. Elliot Abrams agreed to cooperate with investigators and returned was allowed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor charges instead of facing possible felony. The National Security Advisor, Robert C. McFarlane, pleaded guilty to four misdemeanors and was sentenced to two years probation and 200 hours of community service, as well as a $20,000 fine. Coincidentally, he was also pardoned by George Bush. Alan Fires was the chief of the Central Intelligence Agency's Central American Task Force, He pleaded guilty in 1991 to two counts of withholding information from Congress and was sentenced to one year of probation and 100 hours of community service. He was also pardoned by George Bush. This is bullshit. Most of these things like, you know, lying to Congress and, um, you know, perjury and these felony charges, if they were anybody else other than these high-ranking officials, the the penalties that would have been imposed upon them would have been so much more. And it's so hard to reconcile the fact that there are large swaths of people in the United States that are just treated differently differently based upon their standing either in the government or their individual financial standing. And that was another thing that's just kind of rung true the longer and the more time I've spent with, you know, my good friend Ronald Reagan and his administration. But that was L&D Fires. Richard Miller, partner with Oliver North uh, and Office of Public Diplomacy Front Group, convicted of conspiracy to defraud the United States. Claire George was the chief of Central Intelligence Agency's Division of Covert Operations under President Reagan. He was convicted of lying to two congressional committees in 86. I'll give you one guess. He was also pardoned by George Bush. Richard Secord was indicted on nine felony counts of lying to Congress and pleaded guilty to a felony charge of lying to Congress. Thomas C. Kleins was convicted of four counts of tax-related offenses for failing to report income from the Iran-Contra operations. John Poindexter, Reagan's national security advisor, was found guilty of five criminal counts including lying to Congress, conspiracy, and obstruction of justice. 
His conviction was later overturned on grounds that he did not receive a fair trial. The prosecution may have been influenced by his immunized testimony in front of Congress. You fucking kidding me? This dude literally was just shredding documents. He was told, hey, you're going to be indicted. You might want to do something about all of the evidence piling up on your desk. Oh, yep, 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 I got it. Let me just shred all of it. Fucking A. Oliver North was indicted on 16 charges in the Iran-Contra affair and found guilty of three. Aiding and abetting construction, obstruction of Congress, shredding or altering official documents, and accepting a gratuity. His convictions were later overturned on the grounds that his immunized testimony had tainted his trial. Dwayne R. Claridge also pardoned bef uh, before trial by Bush. Uh, yeah, that's just that's a little bit about some of the people involved. Now, let's talk about the real Iran-Contra affair, the background, why everything happened the way it did, and uh, where to kind of go from here. But before we get there, I'm going to take a little break because... My mouth is already dry. Um, thank you, ADHD medication. Welcome back from the break. It was a little bit longer for me than it was for you, but nevertheless, I'm going to get right into background on the Iran-Contra affair. The institutional history of the NSC and the CIA, um, or the National Security Council, and the Central Intelligence Agency developed in such a way that structurally allowed each to work around Congress and have the executive branch and third-party actors implement and frame foreign policy of the United States. We kind of have to look at how we look historically at the evolution of the two groups, um, and the beginnings start with the National Security Act of 1947. Truman signed it and uh, gave birth simultaneously to both the NSC and the Central Intelligence Agency. The NSC was not originally funded to facilitate presidential decision-making, but it evolved with each administration until it became structured and powerful enough to perform covert operations. During Eisenhower's administration in the mid-50s, the NSC became a virtual adjunct of the presidency. The NSC staff was under a special assistant to the president and not the NSC directly, turning the presidency into a bureaucracy itself. The Kennedy administration's changes to the NSC were driven by the, pay, by the Bay of Pigs incident that left Kennedy skeptical of the traditional departments and led him to prefer a more direct and personal style of executing policies. It was under Kennedy that the distinction between planning and operation was altered 
whereas the NSC was previously a planning entity only, Kennedy made it also functionally operational. This allowed the executive branch to avoid the State Department and furthered a trend of inflating the office of the president through its replication of the rest of other pieces of the government. The office of the president grew in ways that sometimes supported and sometimes competed with and other times ignored other governmental agencies and offices. It's something this inflationary trend of the presidency really started to take a foothold um, in the 80s as well as in the 60s. Um, But in the 80s, you started to see more executive action um, on behalf of the president's administration, uh, which caused problems. We'll just say problems. I'll discuss the problems, but right now I'm going to talk just about the Iran problem, um, as well as what happened with the NSC to make it kind of that extra piece of um, operative an operative part of the executive function. As I said, the inflationary trend continued with the Reagan administration. The NSC became further professionalized with a staff of about 45 under the NSA, under the National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane, and more than 200 people in support of it became further structured in reflection of the State Department under Robert McFarland's successor, John Poindexter. When it was organized into 12 directorates, the African office, European office, etc. The person most hurt and most undermined by this trend was the second Secretary of State, George Shultz, during the Reagan administration, because now the president was performing similar duties with similar staff, From his very own office, the NSC was now large and varied enough to carry out the president's wishes covertly, even from the rest of the government. That last statement was from Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, Deputy Director of Political Military Affairs for the NSC. January 20th, 1981, Ronald Reagan was inaugurated during a rightward shift in U.S. politics. He quickly cut off all aid to uh, FSLN in Nicaragua, basically the the people that were in charge, uh, who had recently taken charge in Nicaragua. Um, And he cut it off due to the Sandinistas' continued support of the Salvadoran rebels. In response, the Sandinistas consolidated power and expanded arrests of perceived uh, dissidents under the belief the U.S. would invade. And remember, this is in Nicaragua. Um, basically, a little bit of more background is the the U.S. has kind of had kind of been in Nicaraguan affairs since like 1912, and kind of built up almost this right right leaning attitude up until um, the 70s, which saw this group, the FSLN, uh, take over the Nicaraguan government, and they were definitely socialist or left-leaning, definitely more on the side of communism. 
And Ronald Reagan saw that as a threat. He saw any communism in the Western world as a threat uh, to American policy, to their operations, to, you know, he, he, in short, he saw it as a threat. So he stopped funding and, and the U.S. had been funding Nicaragua or Nicaraguan aid for a very long time, which me personally, I don't think is the right thing to do. Uh, having a society depend on aid from somebody else as opposed to other methods of developing a country and economy, I think, is very hurtful to them. But that's my personal opinion. Okay, so that's that. I, I just kind of wanted to take that out there. Uh, the the Sandinistas, the FSLN, really started to consolidate power, and they started to remove people in in a position that were in their way, and they started committing humanitarian issues, and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And Reagan just, he didn't like it. So he's like, yeah, we need to fund people that are against this movement. Like I said, they kind of, the Sandinistas, while consolidating power, really thought that the U.S. would invade. But on December 1st, 1981, Reagan signed an order that allowed the CIA to support the Contras with arms, equipment, and money. And again, the Contras is uh, counter-revolutionaries, which is kind of where the word derives from. They are the ones that are fighting the Sandinistas. The order was implemented in conjunction with an overall strengthening of U.S. of the U.S. presence in Central America and the belief that covert activities are the most effective way to put pressure on a regime. This shift of foreign policy away from the Carter's administration's non-intervention culminated in June 1982 with the Reagan Doctrine, which called for supporting uh, dem- democratization everywhere. It was at this point that the goal of the covert operations in Nicaragua shifted away from one of simply, uh, like, interdicting arms to one of supporting, uh, interdicting in Nicaragua. It was at this point that the goal of the covert operations in Nicaragua shifted away from one of simply interdiction uh, of arms to one of supporting a change in government. Uh, The Iran-Contra historian Theodore Draper, among others, argue that this was pretty much er, the hypothesized goal all along. To help popularize the foreign policy changes of the Reagan administration, certain propaganda and media initiatives were implemented to sway public and congressional opinion. In January of 1983, the National Security Decisions Directive was signed entitled Management of Public Diplomacy Relative to National Security, and it institutionalized public diplomacy. In effect, it was a special planning group within the NSC to coordinate public diplomacy campaigns or propaganda campaigns against the American people. This group was the first, was America's first peacetime propaganda ministry. Every administration tries to influence public opinion, but not until Reagan was it institutionalized. Another use of white propaganda um, was 
which white propaganda, which Richard Miller described as actually putting out the truth, straight information, and not deception, was the State Department's group of Latin American public diplomacy, the SLPD. This group, in actuality, reported directly to the NSC despite being housed within the State Department. That's pretty weird. But both committees utilized a variety of media propaganda and control efforts. A 14-page memorandum dated March 20, 1985, from North to National Security Advisor Robert McFarland. And this memorandum that was dated in 1985 explained over 80 publicity stunts to influence public and congressional opinion before upcoming contra-aid votes. 80 different publicity stunts um, trying to get Congress to vote one way or the other. I mean, <laughs> that's nuts. Eh? That's talking about trying to uh, control uh, you know, other parts of the government, which should have completely separate checks and balances. Um, I don't think this part of the Iran-Contra scandal gets really as much negative press as it should. Um, and this started a very dangerous precedent in the United States. The public diplomacy officials also leaked selected pieces of information that they wanted made public to journalists who favored Reagan. Strategic leaking and declassification of documents allowed the executive branch to manage the public perceptions of the American efforts in South America. Basically, what they're saying is that those efforts worked. In a joint session of Congress, President Reagan said, the Congress shares both the power and the responsibility for our foreign policy. But by the time Congress exercised said shared power by passing Boland 1, the Reagan administration had already committed itself to support the Contras unconditionally and at any cost, even if that meant defying Congress. Open defiance was impossible at this point because even though the the Reagan administration spent so much trying to convince Congress. News of some of the stuff had started to leak in the opposite direction. And passing of Boland 1, which basically tried to cut aid off for any of the Contras or Sandinistas or any Nicaraguan aid at all, um, really tried to cut that short. And that was, you know, pre-1984. Boland won. Um, okay, because the Reagan administration had already committed itself, um, the defiance was impossible. So covert defiance was adopted as the executive branch's new normal. Boland 1 left a loophole that Reagan administration quickly utilized as long as the U.S. itself did not intend to overthrow the Nicaraguan government, the U.S. could support the Contras under a different guise such as humanitarian aid or by the solicitation of money from third-party funds and private sectors. Thus, Boland had no impact on the conduct of the war in Nicaragua. Again, Contras trying to kind of this right-winged movement trying to take back um, Nicaragua from, from the Sandinistas. Well, realizing the debacle that 
their ineffectiveness of Boland won, Congress still determined to stop the flow of funds to Nicaragua. They passed a second Boland Amendment Act in October 12, 1984, which reads, During the fiscal year 1985, no funds available to the CIA, the Department of Defense, or any other agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities may be obligated or expended for the purposes or which would have the effect of strong of supporting directly or indirectly military or paramilitary operations in Nicaragua by any nation, group, organization, movement, or individual. Damn, that was a mouthful. It sounds pretty foolproof, right? Well, this second Boland Amendment left two loopholes for getting money to the Contras. And as we've already seen, the U.S. Uh, Reagan's administration is all about getting money to the Contras in any way that it possibly could. Because of Reagan's fear of communism and socialism, which caused other problems around this time, which I'll get into later. But these two loopholes, uh, the the first loophole, like that of the Boland One, was to solicit third-party funds from private donors or third-party countries to give money to the Contras. The second loophole was to use the NSC, which was president's, which kind of is the president's principal forum for considering national security and foreign policy matters. Um, so based on that logic, the NSC is not covered under Boland. Loosely. I I mean, that's treading on thin waters. Um, but President Reagan trusted that Oliver North uh on loan to the NSC from the Marine Corps to begin um, to begin to undertake this activity of kind of getting funds to the Contras secretly. President Reagan trusted that North, in conjunction with McFarland, would make sure to keep the Contras together, body and soul, he said. The passage of Boland II led to creative means of operational support of the Contras. Arms deals, air supply drops intelligence support, and further solicitation of additional third-party funds.
let's talk about the diversion scheme as well as Saudi Arabia providing more than $32 billion in third-party support to the Contras, basically because the U.S. government asked. Maybe I could ask for $32 million and Saudi Arabia would just give it to me. Hey, Saudi Arabia, you gave $32 million to the Nicaraguan government, um, or not to the Nicaraguan government, to these people supporting uh, basically a, a revolution in which thousands of people died. Can you just give me that money so I can continue making this podcast? No? Well, damn it, guys, I tried. So when private funding and the third-party governments didn't provide that support, or the support that North wanted, um, Oliver North came up came upon the idea of overcharging the Iranians for weapons sold to them by Americans and using the surplus to fund the Contra resupply operation and other covert activities. North wrote that what would later be inf infamously known as the diversion memo to the new National Security Advisor John Poindexter and President Reagan, in which he outlined how $12 million of the profits Sikord and Hakim made from the sale of arms to Iran would be used to purchase critically needed supplies for the Nicaraguan Democratic Resistance Forces. Of all of the events of the Iran-Contra affairs, it was this, the diversion scheme, that was the most controversial and explosive. I would say kind of rightly slow. So this kind of really, it really went into some shit. So with government funding, 100% of the money goes directly to the beneficiary most of the time. With third party and active and private actors, a portion of that will be allocated as profit. Naturally, uh, they need to be paid for their time. In December 1985, as part of the Intelligence Authorization Act, Congress outlawed most U.S. government departments and agencies, except for the State Department, from which soliciting money from third-party countries to fund the Contras for humanitarian assistance only. Uh, did you catch that? So basically, the State Department was uh, allowed to solicit funds, provided that the money donated was from the country's own funds and the U.S. did not enter into any express or implied arrangement making U.S. provision of assistance to the third country contingent on the third country's assistance to the Contras. So that's a brief overview there. I'm going to go into who the Contras are. And then after that, I'm going to go into the deal with Iran and how fucky it was and kind of go into eventually the Tower Commission and finish up after that with the Iran-Contra affair. And we will continue on this course of corruption and scandal within the... Uh, we'll continue on the course of corruption and scandal within the... Reagan administration because it just it, it it doesn't seem to end there's just so much literature out there um, I hope you guys enjoy all of your own private research I hope you enjoy looking all of this stuff up because it was it was wonderful let's take a look at the Contras this is I gave you a brief overview and this is going to be the better overview 
Anastasio Somoza de Bale was the leader of Nicaragua from 67 until July of 79, when he was overthrown by the Sandinistas. When President Ronald Reagan took office in 81, he promptly canceled the final 15 million payment of a 75 million aid package to Nicaragua, reversing the Carter's administration policy towards them. On November 17, 81, President Reagan signed National Security Directive, authorizing the provision of covert support to anti-Sandinista forces. On December 1, 1981, Reagan signed a document intending to conceal the November 17th authorization of anti-Sandinista operations. The document characterized the United States' goal in Nicaragua as that of in interdicting the flow of arms from Nicaragua to El Salvador, where leftist guerrillas were receiving aid from Sandinista forces. Well, in Late 1982, Edward Boland, this is where I was talking about the Boland Initiative earlier, chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, introduced an amendment to the fiscal year 83 appropriations bill that prohibited the CIA, the principal conduit of covert oper American support for the Contras, from spending funds for the purpose of overthrowing the government of Nicaragua. However, the CIA could continue to support the Contras if it claimed that the purpose was something other than to overthrow the government. I already talked about it, right? In December 83, a compromise was reached, and Congress passed a funding cap uh, for the fiscal year of $24 million for aid to the Contras, an amount that was significantly lower than what Reagan wanted. And it kind of included with the possibility that the administration could seek supplemental funds later. This funding was insufficient to support the administration's Contra program, and the decision was made to approach other countries for monetary support. Well, in 84, Robert McFarland convinced Saudi Arabia to contribute uh, $1 million per month to the Contras through a secret bank account set up by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Yeah, $1 million per month. In October 1984, the second Boland Amendment took effect. And as I said, it prohibited any military or paramilitary support for the Contras um, from October 3rd, 84 through December 19th, 85. As a result of that, the CIA Department of Defense began withdrawing personnel from Central America. During this time, however, the NSC continued to provide support to the Contras because Reagan felt that that group wasn't covered under the, Boland, the second Boland Amendment. August 85, Congress approved 25 million more in humanitarian aid to the Contras, with the proviso that the State Department and not the CIA or the DOD administer the aid. President Reagan, he created the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office, the NHAO, to supply the humanitarian aid. In 85, Oliver North began using the Salvadorian airbase at Ilopengo for Contra supply efforts. I mean, the, the the more you read into this, just the fuckier it gets. On October 5th, 86, a plane loaded with supplies for the Contras financed by private benefactors was shot down by Nicaraguan soldiers. On board were weapons and other lethal supplies and three Americans. One American, Eugene Hassenfuss, claimed while in custody that he worked for the CIA. 
the Reagan administration denied any knowledge of the private resupply efforts. Of course they did. On October 17, 1986, Congress approved $100 million in funds for the Contras. In 87, after the discovery of private supply efforts orchestrated by the NSC and Oliver North, Congress seized all but non-lethal aid. The war between the Sandinistas and the Contras ended with a ceasefire in 1990 and a democratically held election. Although the Contras were often referred to as one group, several distinct factions made up the Contras. So it wasn't just like one person that all of this aid was going to, or one group. It was a bunch of different groups, and they all had different agendas. What were they doing with this money? Well, I mean, some of it was drugs, some of it was weapons, some of it was bribery. Um... There was a lot that went into it, but still the idea that uh, American tax money was used to fund bribery and weapons initiatives um, in, a, in a different country is just overall really upsetting under the guise of humanitarian aid, no less. And the fact that this didn't hurt Reagan's legacy more than it did is astounding. The deal with Iran. The Iran story from secular to Islamic Republic is an oil-rich nation. Iran is a country that the U.S. has had a long-held foreign policy interest in. Oil. They wanted oil. Well, yeah, the U.S. maintained favorable relations with Iran throughout the Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi's secular yet authoritarian rule. During those years, Iran was one of the United States' strongest allies in the Middle East. It was this close relationship with the U.S. and its foundation in the Shah's secularism that ultimately served as an impetus, impetus for riots and demonstrations to break out across Iran in 1978. These demonstrations grew in strength and number, culminating in the Shah leaving Iran in 1979 and Ayatollah Khomeini naming Iran the Islamic Republic. Ayatollah immediately severed all ties with the U.S. and declared Israeli and Israel an illeg illegitimate country. He ruled I Iran as a religious leader, Further consolidating his power, Iran shifted from the U.S.'s most powerful and valued ally in the Middle East to an American enemy almost overnight. On July 1st, 1985, the New York Times quoted Ronald Reagan saying, The United States gives terrorists no rewards. We make no concessions. We make no deals. Three days later, McFarlane met with Israeli David Kinchy who had previously met uh, with Khashoggi and Gorbanefar. God, I'm butchering these names. I'm positive. I always have, always will deal with it. Uh, well, he met with these people, uh, and the arms for hostages deal was first outlined as both a means to obtain 
the release of American hostages in addition to an attempt to improve diplomatic relations. Literally days after Reagan denounced bartering with terrorists on 1985, McFarland visited President Reagan and his chief of staff, Donald Reagan, with while the president was in the hospital recovering from it and from an abdominal surgery. McFarland proposed the recently outlined arms for hostages deal that specifically called for the selling of 100 American tow anti-tank missiles to Iran via Israel in exchange for some, if not all American hostages and open communications with Iran. Listen to this shit. They just said, yeah, we don't talk. We don't do it. We don't communicate with terrorists. What we will do is we will sell them 100 anti-tank missiles, though. Especially because during this time, Iran and Iraq were really ramping up tensions in the Middle East. America would also send replacement tows to Israel. There are conflicting accounts of what was actually said and agreed to at the meeting. Reagan remembered McFarland saying to the president, they have been approached by the Israelis who had contact that they would put us in touch with that could lead to a breakthrough in reaching elements in the government in Iran. And this could lead to some help in the hostage situation because we suspected that the Iranians were in some way connected to the group who had abducted the Americans. McFarland gave multiple versions of what the president said at the hospital. One version that McFarland relayed to Poindexter was that Reagan was all for letting the Israelis do anything they wanted, including selling the anti-tank missiles. Another version McFarland gave was that, as I recall, Reagan said that he could understand how people who were trying to overthrow a government would need weapons, but we weren't yet sure about whether they were legitimate, so he said that the United States couldn't do it. But they did end up doing it. Reagan gave multiple stories of that day. He said he didn't really remember the reading, um, and but in 1990, he agreed that during the meeting, he first became aware of the arms for hostage initiatives in Iran. So Reagan's memory is all over the place. He was a part of it. He wasn't a part of it. He remembers, but he doesn't remember. Um, he was part of the initial discussion, but he wasn't part of the initial discussion. Um, again, just... As a federal investigator, I can't even imagine trying to go through this and and pick out what's the truth and what's not. I'm sure it was just impossible. The Enterprise on August 20th, 1985. The first load of 96 tow missiles was sent from Israel to Iran. Khashoggi provided bridge financing, posting one million of his private funds until Iran paid Israel for the weapons. The deal was wholly managed through private actors. Uh, Gorbanafar for Iran and Schwimmer and Nimrodi for Israel. Lieutenant North was brought into the Iran affair by McFarland to manage logistics and the interests of the United States. And North continued to stay involved in Iran when Poindexter succeeded McFarland. 
and that was August 20th, 1985. On September 15th, 1985, American hostage ben- Benjamin Weir was released after 408 more tows were shipped to Iran. Any profits from the deal went to Gorbin Arfar, Schwimmer, or Nimrodia. So it took 96 tow missiles for them to talk to us, and then it took an additional 408 tow missiles to release one American hostage. I mean, great. We got an American hostage. But in the process, they received over 500 anti-tank missiles. 500. Major General Richard Saccord was brought into the Iran affair by... Oliver North to help resupply Israel's weapon store and organize logistical issues such as moving sensitive material between Israel and Iran. Well, right, we they released him after Iran gave them 500 missiles. Well, now the U.S. has to resupply Israel. The second sale... In November 1985, the second load of missiles was sold to Iran. The second sale provided the first funds that were diverted to the Nicaraguan Contras. To complete the diversion covertly and without the knowledge of Congress, Sikord and Hakim established a company called the Stanford Technology Trading Group International, which is commonly known as the Enterprise. Israel transferred $1 million to an enterprise-owned Sikord Hakim Lake Resources Swiss Bank account for the second arms shipment. That's insane. So, of 500 missiles, only 1 million was put into this uh, this bank account. And this account had previously been used for Nicaraguan Contra business. Of the 1 million, only 150 was spent on, like, weapons and aid to the Contras. The other eight hundred and fifty thousand was diverted. Uh, was diverted by North. Ordinarily, the entire million would have been paid back to the Israelis, but in this instance, North told them we used it for the purpose of the Contras, and they acknowledged that. And they never asked for the money back. In January of eighty-six, the diversion scheme continued when Gorbin Afar, Gorbin Afar, Gorbin Afar. Fuck it. Suggested that any extra money made through the arms sales be diverted to aiding the Contras. McFarland's successor, Poindexter, approved of this plan. The second shipment of arms for hostages mentioned briefly above was, or briefly, was a logistical fucking nightmare that North described as a horror story. The original plan was that on November 22nd, 85, 120 Hawk missiles would be shipped from Israel to Portugal on an Israeli 747. Well, in Portugal, the weapons would be unloaded, stored, and reloaded on a non-Israeli plane and shipped to Iran in two intervals. The first one, 80 Hawks, would be sent, followed by the release of hostages, second contingent upon the hostages' release. The remaining 40 would then be sent to Iran. Schwimmer, who was heading the Israeli operations, applied last minute to get the necessary clearances to land the cargo of arms at the Portuguese airport in Lisbon. 
he found that the authorities were hesitant to grant him permission. It was at this point that Oliver North pulled up his bootstraps and got involved and met with the Israeli Defense Minister Rabin in New York on November 18th about the operational logistics of shipping the oil drilling equipment to Iran. I don't think that um, Tomahawk cruise missiles would be very good at oil drilling. That's just me, though. To help with the logistics, Northbot brought in Secord um, rather than using someone from the U.S. government because Support had close ties with leading Portuguese arms dealer defects. The first effort to get airport clearance was described to the Portuguese Foreign Ministry as defects working with a retired American general to ship arms to Iran. And if that wasn't fishy enough, it confused Portuguese officials because of what they understood as the United States' opposition to all shipments of, I of arms to Iran under Operation Staunch. They were rightly skeptical of the whole affair, especially in regards to who was making the arms shipment request the United States government or a private citizen. Why would a private citizen be sending 80 uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles to Iran? When the request was denied, Oliver North worked with Dewey Claridge, chief of European division of the CIA, to help deal with Lisbon airport crisis and try again to obtain airport clearance. Portugal pretty firmly insisted on receiving a formal acknowledgement that they were being asked to help in a weapon shipment, so they couldn't later be charged with uh, being complicit within the operation. Well, North and Claridge used an alternate plan utilizing propri proprietary airline flights to make the arms shipment. A proprietary airline is such that it is owned and controlled by the CIA, but operates as if it were an ordinary commercial operation when not utilized for a special CIA assignment. When Claridge decided to go the proprietary route, he informed the CIA controller in Frankfurt that an urgent flight that was in the interest of the U.S. government would need to be flown. The shipment method did not run smoothly either, running across problems in Cyprus, Turkey, and culminating in the realization that the wrong missiles had been sent once they reached Tehran. The horror story ended with the decision to immediately repeat the operation under U.S. instead of Israeli management, and it was led with more success. So I couldn't find what missiles were sent to Tehran um, other than the 80 proposed Hawk missiles. So they got whatever the fuck that was. And then the same operation was attempted again to get them the fucking missiles that they originally wanted in exchange for maybe some hostages. We're going to send them 80 Hawk missiles and they might give the U.S. hostages back. After experiencing difficulties such as the second arms shipment and problems in securing the discussed exchanges with Iran, in January of 86, Reagan signed a presidential finding authorizing U.S. arms sales to Iran. This is where I'm positive that Reagan knew. He's like, all right, shit's gone downhill. Let I'm just going to sign this. We're going to sell shit to Iran, and we're going to use the leftovers, and we're going to... Use that money for the Contras. 
while Secord and the Enterprise would still be used as a third party to release the U.S. of any liability. Israel would still serve as a base, but it would no longer buy and sell weapons. Now the Enterprise would buy and sell weapons directly on behalf of the United States. So the U.S. was selling arms to a private foundation to sell to Iran to maybe get back hostages. I wonder how well it worked. Well, the second channel, after continuing difficulties in securing the release of hostages from Iran, well, it didn't go very well. And the Saccord determined that the U.S. had to find an alternate channel for dealing with Iran, as opposed to having given them already a shit ton of fucking weapons. In August 86, Hakim, with his new Iranian contact, Al-Ali Hashemi, worked out a nine-point plan that comp compromised both his and the Iranians' interest. The resulting agreement was that the U.S. would send Iran 1,500 tow missiles, anti-tank missiles, in exchange for the release of one and a half hostages. One definitely, and the second with all effective possible effort. Are you fucking kidding me? They got maybe 80 Hawk missiles or a random shipment of other weapons. Who the fuck knows? And then they got 1,500 tow missiles before they released any hostages. Iran also offered to pay the U.S. $3.6 in addition to releasing the hostages, which meant more funds could be diverted to the Contras. This is a really fucking roundabout way can somebody do for me some research on how much a tow missile and the um, how much that system would have cost in 1986? Multiply it by what would it be 1,900, um, as well as how much 80 Tomahawk missiles cost in 1986. Put it all together and tell me how much it was. My guess it was more than 3.6 million dollars. Um, of those 3.6, two was given to the CIA, who supplied the weapons, and the remaining 1.6 was diverted to the Contras. In 1980, November 13, 86, Ronald Reagan made his address to the nation on the Iran arms and Contra aid controversy and addressed the nation in a press conference on November 19, 1986. On the 13th, Reagan said that the U.S. was working with uh, the Iranian government, but on the 19th, he admitted to working with a particular group, implying he dealt with terrorist organizations. Further contradictions were made during the press conference on the 19th when Reagan stated that we do not condone and we did not condone and do not condone the shipment of arms from other countries. Sure you don't. That was said after Chief of Staff Donald Reagan had already admitted that the White House condoned an Israeli shipment of arms to Iran in September of 85. By the 19th, virtually everything about the Iran side of the affair had come out. Surprise, surprise, somebody leaked the information. Missiles and spare parts to Iran, the role of Israel, McFarland's mission to Tehran, North, and everybody else involved. Reagan's blunders during November the 19th conference 
was set into motion public discourse on the president's credibility and role in the whole affair. On November 21st, Oliver North engaged in what he would later be referred to as a shredding party, destroying potentially incriminating documents helped by his secretary, Fawn Hall, in anticipation of the Justice Department lawyers coming to search his office the next day. North did not, however, destroy the smoking gun of the connection between the Iran arms sales and the funding of the Nicaraguan Contras, the diversion memo. After Attorney General Meese, Assistant Attorney General Reynolds, and Chief of Staff to Attorney General Richardson interviewed North about the document, the Reagan administration raced to release this information to the public. Fearing accusations of a Watergate-style cover-up, and more seriously, the possibility of impeachment, President Reagan himself publicly acknowledged the diversion scheme of the arms deal to the public. November 25th, Reagan held a press conference where Attorney General Meese responded to the majority of the questions. Meese said that the affair did not go any higher than Admiral Poindexter. This press conference was also the first time the possibility of legal charges was discussed with North. Watching from a TV in his office found out simultaneously with the general public that he could be facing those criminal charges. The very same day, Poindexter resigned as National Security Advisor, and North who was only detailed to the NSC and appointed as assistant to the president, was transferred back to the Marines. Hmm. Investigating the Iran-Contra affair, there were three mechanisms that were established to uncover the truth. In hopes of regaining public trust in addition to fully understanding the scandal, a special review board appointed by Reagan, an independent counsel per Mises' request, and holding of immunized joint congressional hearings. When I look back at this data and kind of what it represents, it really represents a way for everybody involved to pretty much get out of it without too much bad press hanging over their heads. The immunized hearings really gave a base for Poindexter and North to state their case early enough in the investigation where those testimonies could not be held against them in court later. And Reagan setting up his point of, I didn't know what the fuck was going on by saying, oh, yeah, we need to uh, we need to appoint things and do things so that the people don't impeach me. I think that's probably how those conversations went. Let's talk about those three things. The Tower Commission. On November 26, 1986, one day after Reagan and Attorney General Meese held a press conference, which they publicized the scheme, President Reagan appointed former U.S. Senator John Tower and others to a special review board known as the Tower Commission. The Tower Commission was created with the purpose of evaluating the operation of the National Security Council in general and the role of the NSC staff in particular. The Tower Commission released its findings February 26, 1987, concluding that the NSC itself was sound and placed a heavy amount of blame on Chief of Staff Regan. 
and National Security Advisor Poindexter. Although the, the Tower Commission did not find Reagan guilty, nor claimed that he knew more than he was leading on to, it did argue that Reagan should have been more informed, criticizing his managerial style of running the White House for causing him to act with neglect and lack of oversight. And it just completely baffles me that uh, these two, that Reagan wouldn't have been informed about any of this. Um, he was already informed about the Iran deal, maybe not of specifically the diversion. But to say that he holds no culpability for the problems that were caused under his direct oversight within the NSC. Remember, the NSC is the the president's covert operations, uh, you know, agency. That's what they do. They work for the president within the, the, the White House. And these people who were basically on NSC directives uh, working with the CIA, then the president was never told. It just... Although possible, it just seems really unlikely to me. Independent counsel Walsh, per request of Journal, uh, Attorney General Meese, a panel of three judges appointed to the counsel. Lawrence Walsh to investigate the legal issues of the Iran-Contra affairs. Walsh was a former judge and deputy attorney general under Eisenhower, requested an official appointment by the U.S. Department of Justice on March 5th, 87. In order to avoid challenges over the constitutionality of using an independent counsel, Walsh's job was made extremely difficult because of the immunity granted to the joint committee hearings. These difficulties were formally presented to the Congress in a report dated April 28th, 1987. Walsh also encountered a problem with gray mail, the refusal to declassify documents even if necessary to conduct a fair trial. Only the attorney general can overrule the refusal. Yeah, they hired an independent counsel, but he wasn't allowed to do shit. He wasn't allowed to investigate anything or investigate uh, or question to the level that he needed to the two most senior officials that had to deal with the Contra affair in North and Poindexter. It was, it was a fucking scam. The legal aftermath of the Contra affairs included 14 people that were criminally charged. Of those 14, four were, con four were convicted of felony charges. Seven pleaded guilty to other felonies or misdemeanors. One case was dismissed, and two that were awaiting trial were pardoned by George Bush. On March 5th, 87, the joint hearings of the House Select Committee to investigate covert arms transactions with Iran and the Senate Select Committee on, sec on Secret Military Assistance to Iran and the Nicaraguan opposition later referred to simply as the Iran-Contra hearings. It began and lasted 41 days. Co-Chairman Inouye, in his opening statements, described the purpose of the hearings. Our hearings are neither pro-Contra nor anti-Contra, neither pro-administration nor anti-administration. We are not prosecutors, and this is not an adversarial proceeding. We meet here as, an Americans, as American citizens, united in a common effort to find the facts, lest we repeat the mistakes. 
Oliver North's immunized testimony before the Joint Congressional Committee began on July 7th and lasted until July 14th. He came adorned in his military uniform, complete with decorations of valor, valor from Vietnam. The handsome soldier promised on the first day to tell the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. North appeared to some a hero, others a victim. Reagan called them both in 86, but ultimately his favorability rating within that testimony was 67%. He admitted to shredding documents because the attorney general's people were coming to look through his office the next day. Here's a short transcript. Mr. Neilds, who was heading it. And you shredded documents before they got there? Mr. North, I would prefer to say that I shredded documents that day like I did on all other days. But perhaps with increased intensity. That's correct. North's testimony also revealed his willingness to engage in controversial, possibly illegal, covert activities. Mr. North, I want you to know lying does not come easy to me. I want you to know that it doesn't come easy to anybody. But I think we all had to weigh in on the balance, the difference between lives and lies. I had to do that on a number of occasions in both these operations. It's not an easy thing to do. You can really start to see how he painted himself to be a victim. And though he didn't really put any culpability on the president, it seems that all of his statements were directed to that effect, to kind of pull blame away from him. The hearing's majority report concluded that North's testimony demonstrates that he also lied to members of the executive branch, including Attorney General and officials of the State Department, CIA, and NSC. God damn. Yeah, I don't like lying, but I will lie to the Attorney General, the CIA, the NSC, State Department, you know, the important people. They also said, and also, that other officials lied repeatedly to Congress and to the American people about the Contra covert action and Iran arms sales, and that he altered and destroyed official documents. Well, that's some shit. We'll never know what was destroyed, but the hearing majority's report referred to North as the central figure of the Iran-Contra affair. It did acknowledge that he did not and could not have acted alone, but it was his coordination and involvement in all activities and secret operations that made him the leading character. Maybe somebody can explain to this to me. Uh, I think he was a Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Is somebody with that clearance able to sell... Tomahawk cruise missiles or tow missiles in the amount that he required without somebody from above him being involved. It just makes no sense. Like the people that were like looking at those documents saying, Oh yeah, yeah, you can have these missiles. What are they for? Oil drilling. What? Where 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 are you going to do oil drilling? Iran with Tomahawk cruise missiles. Yeah, it's the latest and greatest thing. Don't worry, it's fine. I got it.
North did explain that he sought approval for every one of his actions, and it is well documented. Sort of. Some of those documents were missing. So if he sought approval for them, why did they say that he was the central figure in the Iran-Contra affair? He also assumed when he had approval to proceed from Bud McFarlane or Admiral Poindexter that they had indeed solicited and obtained the approval of the president. The Hearings Committee Majority Report recognized this casual chain of command, but North admitted that simply following orders alone wasn't sufficient grounds for breaking the law. Both he and Admiral Poindexter have argued, however, that their activities did not break the law because they did not use money appropriated by the Congress. And see, I disagree with that. They used money originally appropriated by Congress for the purchase of these weapons uh, or the creation of the weapons through military contracts uh, for use within the United States military. And they used that money uh, for those weapons to have those weapons then sold to Iran. I think it is utter bullshit. And the use of, and granted, you know, I'm not a lawyer. So, but to me, that, that makes sense. I mean, that's just a really shitty workaround. The use of legal defenses was utilized again by North when he testified that he got a legal opinion from the staff counsel of the president's intelligent oversight board, a group of civilians appointed by the president to act as an independent watchdog over intelligence organizations that confirmed that the NSC was not violating Boland restrictions as long as the solicitation, banking, and movement of supplies were done outside the United States. So not only were not only were people within the United States military and NSC organizations involved, but he also sought advice from a group of civilians. And I, those must be some damn good non-disclosure agreements. And that's Oliver North's story. That's his part of it. John Poindexter, his. Immunized testimony went from July 15th to the 21st. And he appeared different than North. Poindexter provided a stark contrast. He showed up in civilian clothing because, as he said the first day of the hearings, this issue is not a Navy issue. Poindexter was much more awkward, less dynamic, and frankly not as handsome as North. The Watergate scandal's legacy focused the hearing's questions to what did the president know and what did he know of it? These questions were addressed by Poindexter, who took full responsibility of the affair. Of course he would. I think these were not the right questions to be asked, but sometimes you take what you can get in a congressional committee. This is in direct contrast to the Watergate scandal where John Dean turned against Nixon in the public hearings. Poindexter testified, testified that the buck stopped with him and that Reagan knew nothing about the dispersion and the dispersion plan. Poindexter cited three reasons for why he was justified in not informing the president. Again, I'm not sure I fully understand this. First, Poindexter, unlike McFarland, did not believe that the Boland Amendment applied to the NSC. Thereby, Poindexter believed that the diversion of funds to the Contras was legal. 
Second, he saw the diversion as a detail of the larger political goal of aiding the Contras. Third, the president would have supported the policy had he known about it. That's like saying, yeah, I, I sold a gun to the guy that killed that person over there. Whose gun was it? It was my dad's. Oh, I'm sure my dad would have agreed to it if, if he had known about it. But I just, you know, I just went ahead and did it without his knowledge. Except we're talking about Hawk missiles and anti-tank missiles. To a terrorist organization within Iran holding U.S. hostages, of which we didn't get all back. Hmm. Chairman Hamilton criticized Poindexter for claiming the buck stops with him because that is not where the buck is supposed to stop, arguing that Poindexter was only that Poindexter only wanted to deflect responsibility from the president and that should not be done in our system of government. But there's nothing really stopping him from doing it, especially if the evidence is gone. Poindexter admitted during his testimony that he destroyed Reagan's signed finding that sent arms to Iran on November 21st, 1986 in order to avoid political embarrassment, and he also claimed to not recall several key incidents. Two-thirds of those polled after Poindexter's testimony believed that he was covering up for others in the administration, and a majority said he was covering up for the president. No shit. We already said that president signed the fucking papers to send arms to Iran, and we were saying, oh yeah, he, he didn't know anything about it. The majority report of the Congressional Committee investigating the Contra affair released on November 18th, 87, like the Tower Commission, criticized Reagan for his blunders. The fact that the president himself told the public that the U.S. government had no connection to the Hassenfuss airplane, he told the public that early reports of arms sales for hostages had no foundation. He told the public that the United States had not traded arms for hostages. He told the public that the United States had not condoned the arms sales by Israel to Iran when, in fact, he had approved them and signed a finding, which, again, was later destroyed by Poindexter, which recorded his approval. All of these statements by the president were wrong, as well as his lack of oversight was wrong. Nevertheless, the ultimate responsibility for the events in the Contra Fair must rest with the president. If the president did not know what his national security advisors were doing, he should have. It is his responsibility to communicate unambiguously to his subordinates that they must keep him advised of important actions they take for the administration. The Constitution requires the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. This charge encompasses a responsibility to leave the members of his administration in no doubt that the rule of law governs. I know this is getting really long and we haven't gotten to the other um, scandals, but this one is so important and it just, it just wrinkles my skin. I'm going to talk a little bit real quick kind of about uh, drugs and money, uh, kind of that history, and then we're going to take a break. Why does it always come back to drugs and money with President Reagan? Well, who the fuck knows? 
In January of 87, the CIA presented a report to the State Department that had been coordinated with the DEA. This report included information about an individual named Jose Orlando Bolanos, who in 82 met with the DEA and FBI undercover agents claimed to be in command of an anti-communist movement in Nicaragua called the Internal Front. Laid out a plan to import cocaine into the United States. According to the report, Bolanos requested funds for expenses in connection with his plan to import cocaine, but later refused to take the money and the plan was not implemented. The report also stated that in 86, in December of 86, the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala had received unconfirmed reports from a single untested source that the political director for a contrafaction and conduit for Nicaraguan humanitarian assistance funding were smuggling cocaine in the U.S. In 87, the chief of the CIA's Central American Task Force testified before the IRN Contra Committee of Congress that drug smuggling by the Southern Front Contras was more significant than previously reported. He stated, and I quote, With respect to drug trafficking by the resistance forces, it is not a couple of people. It is a lot of people. He also noted in a deposition taken by committee staff, we knew that everybody around Pastor was involved in cocaine. His staff and friends uh, were, I mean, Pastor's staff and friends, they were kind of all smugglers or involved in drug smuggling. In November of 87, the report of congressional committees investigated the Iran-Contra affair. It was issued jointly by the House Committee. Basically, what this says is that they didn't find any direct indication of drug trafficking or influxes of cash attributed to drugs, um, but they also couldn't say exactly where all of the money was going and that a lot of the individuals involved in this part of these um, contras were in drug smuggling and that there's no way to know whether or not that they were involved. Simple as that. Um, there's kind of a lot more that goes into that part. There was like a, some specials released in, in the American media, and a lot of it was unsubstantiated, but there's just a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to some of that Contra money being used for smuggling um, cocaine into and out of Nicaragua and into and out of the United States uh, is kind of shitty. There's there's just a lot that goes into it. So like I said, after that, we are going to take a break again. Um, think about anything else you guys want to know about in history or an idea for a history's idiot or an idea for a woman you want covered, and I will do my best to make it happen. Just email me, but when we get back, we'll do a quick, some quick lists of some of the other scandals, um, and then we'll do a deep dive into the EPA as well as uh, look at Debategate and the possibility of World War Three. All right, enjoy.
So the Iran-Contra affair took a while to go through. I understand, and uh, I appreciate you guys still listening. After the Iran-Contra affair, we're going to run through uh, quite a few of the different scandals and stuff like that fairly quickly. I will still be going over them, but if you want more detailed information, I really encourage you guys to do your own research. Uh, plenty of it is out there. Or if you have questions on the scandals, I am more than happy to answer them. But the next one that I want to go over is uh, the HUD scandal or HUD rigging scandal. And it occurred uh, during Reagan's pres presidency where the Department of Housing and Urban Development Secretary Samuel Pierce and his associates rigged low-income housing bids to favor Republican contributors to Reagan's campaign, as well as rewarding Republican lobbyists such as James G. Watt, who was the Secretary of the Interior. Sixteen convictions were eventually handed down, including some of the following. James Watt, who was, as I said, Secretary of the Interior, was indicted on 24 felony counts and pleaded guilty to a single misdemeanor. He was sentenced to five years probation and ordered to pay a $5,000 fine. Hmm. The dude was indicted for 24 felony, 24 felony counts, and he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. Yet, during the same period, you're having people who are being imprisoned for several years, you know, five, ten years for drug offenses in the United States. Yeah, it's fine if you're, you know, rigging uh, or providing favors for either party, Republican or Democrat. It's fine if you're, you know, literally defrauding the United States government and its people to the tune of five years probation and a $5,000 fine, but drug penalties were stronger than that in the 80s. Um, it, I don't know. Philip D. Wynn, assistant HUD secretary, pleaded guilty to one count of scheming to give illegal gratuities, and he was pardoned by President Bill Clinton. Uh, Thomas Demery, assistant HUD secretary, pleaded guilty to steering HUD subsidies to politically connected donors, found guilty of bribery and obstruction of justice. Deborah Gordine, executive assistant to Secretary Pierce, indicted on 13 counts, three counts of conspiracy, one count of accepting an illegal gratuity, four counts of perjury, and five counts of concealing articles. She was convicted on 12 of those. She appealed and prevailed on several counts, but the convictions for conspiracy remained. Joseph A. Strauss, special assistant to the Secretary of HUD, convicted for accepting payments to favor Puerto Rican land developers and receiving HUD funding. Silvio uh, de Parc D. Bartolomés, convicted of perjury and bribery. Um, Secretary Pierce, who was, the scandal was really kind of centered around, was not charged because he made a full and public written acceptance of responsibility. It, it doesn't work like that for the rest of the world. And this double standard that you see within politics, um, again, I, I have to point it out, and 
because these are still American citizens, they should be treated as such. The the fact that he literally uh, nothing happened to him because he wrote a, he a written in public acceptance of responsibility that he didn't get anything is just ludicrous. Uh, the next one I want to go over uh, real briefly, uh, there were a few lobbying scandals. Uh, Michael Deaver, Regan's chief of staff, was convicted of lying to both congressional committee and a federal grand jury about his lobbying activities after he left government. He received three years probation and was fined 100000 after being convicted for lying to a congressional subcommittee. Regan's press secretary was convicted on charges of illegal lobbying and after government after leaving government since WedTech scandal, his conviction was later overturned. So just, you know, the, the more you go over an administration's misgivings and their misdemeanors and their indictments and their convictions, you know, the more you have to realize that most of these were people that were appointed by Ronald Reagan himself. Um, how much culpability is to be put on the top of that totem pole? I think more than what people generally do. And that's part of the reason why I'm spending so much time on this part of the podcast. Um, because the war on drugs uh, and race was terrible. And uh, Reaganomics totally ended up fucking the United States. But these scandals, some of these things... Uh, are deeply seated within the United States um, and this idea that you can just forgive uh, some of these really important things is frankly terrible and it's something that we need to spend more time looking at. Next I want to go over EPA scandals or the just really the problems you know Reagan had with the EPA, uh, some of the other stuff that kind of goes with it. So we're going to go through the EPA here. When Reagan assumed presidency in 1981, Reagan placed near the top of his domestic policy agenda the goal of reducing compliance burdens associated with environmental controls and other federal health and safety regulations. We already knew after Reaganomics and Reagan was really into deregulating the government and kind of clearing obstacles for private and public companies to have more freedom. But there's a reason, especially with the EPA, why we're doing these things. Literally trying to save the planet. And when we scale back our regulations and give the opportunity for companies to take shortcuts um, and produce more carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide and, and other pollutants, we're opening the way for a society that none of us should want to be a part of. The Reagan administration substantially reduced the EPA's budget, and it caused a lot of major staff cuts, and it reduced the agency's ability to initiate new enforcement matters. On top of that, Reagan also introduced a very right-leaning um, Court of Appeals judiciary branch, which was really in favor of uh, especially 
compared to some of the other recent appointees, was really in favor of reducing you know, the regulatory standards on the EPA and um, other government agencies. And deregulation of the environment became a pretty dominant theme in the campaign that Ronald Reagan took in the 80s. And as president, he spent a lot of time reversing the course, reversing this machinery, these set of rules that his predecessors had set down, as well as the preceding Congress that, that they had kind of set down and built. President Reagan argued that the health effects of air and water pollution, as well as exposure to hazardous chemicals, had been grossly overstated. He urged the federal government relinquish to the states its long-standing control of lands in the West under federal statutes that had restricted mining, oil extraction, and clear-cutting of timber. Here's a few wonderful quotes by Ronald Reagan. The American Petroleum Institute filed suit against the EPA and charged the agency was suppressing a scientific study for fear it might be misinterpreted. The suppressed study reveals that 80% of air pollution comes not from chimneys and auto exhaust pipes, but from plants and trees. President, presidential candidate Ronald Reagan, 1979. It's... PolitiFact was on here, man. They would just tear that apart. 1981, he reiterated trees cause more pollution than automobiles do. A tree's a tree. How many more do you have to look at? Ronald Reagan in 1966. In 1988, facts are stupid things, which is probably a misquote of John Adams, who said facts are stubborn things. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Facts are stubborn things. They, they tend to get in the way of um, political ideology. So, yeah, I get it. But in 1981, he had two appointments, um, and they were aggressive champions of industry and James G. Watt as Secretary of the Interior, and Anne M. Buford as Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Mr. Reagan seemed to have selected the nation's environmental policies as a prime target of his social revolution. Neither Gorsh, Gorsuch or Watt were able to withstand the barrage of criticism from con from Congress, environmental and public health groups, unions, the media, and citizens just in general that ended up culminating in over 1 million signatures on dump watt petitions. Responding to the public outcry, remember, this was before the internet, 1 million signatures on dump watt. That's ludicrous. Responding to the public outcry, Reagan was obliged to replace Gorsuch with EPA administrators far more concerned with effective enforcement. Um, in, at the interior, there was no dramatic turnaround, but under current Secretary Donald Hodel, the decibel level of hostility to environmental regulation had kind of decreased. Over the course of Reagan's presidency, over 20 high-level EPA employees were removed from office. Um, 
during his first three years as president. Additionally, several agents, agency officials resigned amidst a variety of charges, ranging from being unduly influenced by industry groups to rewarding or punishing employees based on their own political beliefs. One of these such things, Sewergate, the most prominent EPA scandal during this period, involved a targeted release of Superfund grants to enhance the election prospects of local officials aligned with the Republican Party. Yeah, so that's grants that were trying to fund science and looking at the environment and environmental protection, releasing that to enhance the election prospects of Republican Party officials uh, kind of across the United States. Ooh. Rita Laval, as administrator at the IPA, misused Superfund monies and was convicted of perjury. She served three months in prison and was fined $10,000. And Gorsuch Burford, who was Reagan's uh, original appointee, the controversial head of the EPA, um, citing executive privilege, refused to turn over Superfund records to Congress. She was found in contempt, where she resigned. You know, at least she didn't go about go about it like Oliver North and Poindexter, and they just, you know, shredded all of the evidence. But Gorsuch, during her time, demoralized, marginalized, and reorganized EPA staff. In her inaugural speech, according to one interviewee, Gorsuch told employees, we're going to do more with less, and we're going to do it with fewer of you. How awesome would that have been to be be a part of that? Be like, yeah, we're going to do more with less, wait, less of us? Just, like everybody looks at each other, just an oh shit moment. She realized that, she realized part of the promise reducing staff at the agency by 21% between 81 and 83. She also reorganized the agency in pretty disruptive ways including dissolving the Office of Enforcement and distributing its staff to other offices. In the first year of the new administration, civil enforcement cases fell by almost 75%. Yikes. The removal of strong environmental players through, through the reorganization made everyone feel vulnerable as did the hostility of political appointees to career staff. Congressional hearings eventually revealed that agency higher-ups had hit lists of career staff. That's right, they're like, hey, you know, the people that have been contributing to the EPA and working toward bettering the environment in the United States, fuck them. Let's, let's go after those guys. Let's make sure they retire. Let's make sure they quit. Let's put them into different positions that will reduce their the impact that they have within the organization. And an early executive order required regulatory review and cost-benefit analysis for new regulations. And it was enforced by a new Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And this disproportionately targeted EPA rules, and it acted with little transparency. It kind of allowed businesses, business influence to go unchallenged. Like I said, these businesses ended up being able to do almost whatever they wanted without threat of EPA sanctions or problems um, with 
other government agencies. Reagan also created the Presidential Task Force on Regulatory Relief, headed by Vice President George Bush, to solicit industry complaints about environmental rules. Among those from which the task force sought relief was an EPA regulation to phase out leaded gasoline, which it only backed away from after tremendous public outcry. For all of Gorsuch's and Reagan's efforts to dial back this agency's mandates, rules, and reach, they faced a serious obstacle in Congress, where Democrats still controlled the House. The Reagan administration was nevertheless able to slash the EPA budget by coaxing support from conservative Southern House Democrats, some of which those House Democrats did later switch parties to Republican, but that's neither here or there. The cuts really didn't take into effect as much as Gorsuch had originally proposed, but between 80 and 83, the operating budget fell between 27% and the science budget tumbled 58%. The Reagan administration also launched interventions into science-based decision-making. It placed industry-aligned scientists on the EPA's recently created Science Advisory Board. So basically, it stacked the deck, saying, yeah, these are the ones that are saying they're doing misaligned research into why we shouldn't give a fuck about the environment. Let's put them on the board and let's let's make this happen. The new administrators abruptly abandoned standard scientific and risk analysis methods. Well, yeah, because then they couldn't prove their point. For example, despite evidence of the contrary emphasized by their own scientists, the assistant administrator for toxics at EPA, John Todhunter, resisted classifying formaldehyde as a human carcinogen. The Reagan administration also stonewalled the scientific consensus on acid rain, potentially delaying controls on air pollution that would eventually bring large public health co-benefits. The health tolls of this anti-regulatory push at Gorsuch's EPA were likely significant. Dysfunction and corruption in the Superfund Hazardous Waste Program led to delays that a House Energy Oversight Subcommittee investigation found had increased significantly the risks of adverse health effects to thousands of people. This agency's under-the-control-of-Ronald-Reagan's seven-year refusal to recognize formaldehyde as a carcinogen meant for that many more years users of particle board and plywood had to breathe in this cancer-inducing chemical. From neglecting to warn about dioxin levels in Great Lakes fish, to dragging its heels on a cleanup of heavily leaded soil around Dallas, Texas smelter revelations of the literally toxic inaction of Gorsuch's EPA eventually ended eventually helped end her turn at the helm. But that was long after all of those things took place. I mean, we're talking almost a complete neglect for science, for research, for helping to save the environment, all under this deregulatory push that Reagan was pushing through. And Remember, we already talked about the savings and loan crisis in which 747 institutions failed and had to be rescued with over $160 billion in in taxpayer money. 
His elimination of loopholes in the tax code included the elimination of the passive loss provisions that subsidize rental housing. Because this was removed retroactively, it bankrupted many real estate developments, which used this tax break as a premise, which in turn bankrupted those 747 savings and loan offices, many of whom were operating more or less as banks, thus requiring the FDIC to cover their debt and losses with taxpayer money. This, along with some of the other deregulation policies, ultimately led to the largest political and financial scandal in U.S. history to that date. The ultimate cost of the crisis is estimated to have totaled around $150 billion, about $125 billion of which was directly subsidized by the U.S. government. Yeah. B-b-b-bullshit. Really quick here... A couple more things. Operation Ill Wind was a three-year investigation launched in 1986 by the FBI into corruption by U.S. government and military officials and private defense contractors. This is really interesting, and I I think uh, I don't know if there's ever been a movie on it or something, but there should be. It's pretty crazy. The interagency uh or intra-agency like investigation that went down for this i mean across 30 plus counties in the united states the fbi started subpoenaing for uh search warrants which also caused an outcry in the public um because nobody had any idea what was going on just all of a sudden all the FBI was just like, yeah, we need to get into these people's houses um, and these people's places of businesses and search and seize any evidence of wrongdoing of um, like provide like basically providing contracts and money uh, to private defense contractors. Remember, this is the time when Reagan had one of the the largest peacetime buildup of military power in U.S. history. Some of the things, uh, some of the people that were directly affected by this, Melvin Paisley, who was appointed Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 81, uh, was found to have accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes. He pleaded guilty to bribery and served four years in prison. James Gaines, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, took over when Paisley resigned his office. Gaines was convicted of accepting an illegal gratuity and theft and and conversion of government property. Victor D. Cohen, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, was the 50th conviction obtained under the Illwind probe when he pleaded guilty to accepting bribes and conspiring to defraud the government. Those are just a few of the examples. Like I said, there were over 50 convictions obtained in the Illwind probe, something that I think uh, should definitely be looked into, and I leave that to you guys. We had Operation Illwind, and then we had WedTech. WedTech scandal was uh, the WedTech Corporation convicted of bribery for Defense Department contracts. These involved Edward Edwin Meese, Attorney General, you know, the same one that helped Reagan get off in the uh, Iran-Contra affair. Lynn Knopfziger, White House Press Secretary, uh, whose conviction of lobbying was eventually overturned. So 
just a lot of corruption, lots of bribery, lots of accepted bribery. I mean, and these are in military def- within the military defense. So these are things that are affecting the U.S. the U.S.'s the U.S. military's ability to be both successful and the force it needs to be overseas and domestically. Some of these decisions could change the course of his- history depending on the contracts that are accepted. It's really dangerous territory to go into. And when you see, oh yeah, they were accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to accept a specific contract over another one, and, and you're looking at just a few years in prison, um, again, the responsibility of the... U.S. government and the people within just are held to a completely different standard to that of other United States citizens. Debate gate. Um, debate gate's going to be quick, and then we're going to take a, a quick break, and then we're going to get into the nuclear scare of 1983 and kind of what that meant and has meant for U.S. and Russian relations. Debategate was, uh, it involved the final days of the 80, 1980 presidential election, and it involved briefing papers that were have that were to have been used by Jimmy Carter in preparation for the 20, October 28, 1980 debate with Reagan, had somehow been acquired by Reagan's team. Though this fact wasn't divulged to the public until late 83, after Lawrence Barrett published Gambling with History, Reagan in the White House, an in-depth account of Reagan's administration's first two years. James Baker swore under oath that he'd received the briefing book from William Casey, Reagan's campaign manager, but Casey vehemently denied this. The matter was never resolved as both the FBI and Congressional Subcommittee failed to determine how or through whom the briefing book somehow came to Reagan's campaign. Again, it's you can swear under oath all you want, but if somebody doesn't want to tell you something, they're not going to tell you, and there's nothing that you can do to make it happen, especially when you don't have the evidence to back it up. And this has been part of the problem with destroying evidence, with accepting bribes, with failing to make those responsible who should be responsible uh, for these decisions, we've just cultivated a a political structure that just really re- relies on corruption as well as lying, deceit, and generally misguiding the public, including, uh, remember, in, in the 80s, in the 1980s in the Iran Contra affair, they spent, they did what, 80 publicity cents to try and sway public and congressional opinion of the Contras. Just ludicrous. Um, but I'm going to finish there with Debate Gate. And then after our break, we're going to pick right back up, kind of uh, at the last scandal that I want to go over. And this isn't necessarily a scandal, just a really bad series of decisions made by the administration and some of those involved, including President Ronald Reagan. And this goes over part of the reason why, uh, you know, during the 80s, they had nuclear bomb scares and you had to practice going under the tables and 
like that's really gonna protect you um yeah we're gonna pick up there as soon as we come back uh we'll give it 30 seconds here and we'll be right back Welcome back, boys and girls. Standing on the brink, the secret war scare of 1983. We would be wise to remember a time when a toxic cocktail of threats, fear, and misunderstanding nearly led us down the path to Armageddon. And what I have here is um, the notes from Jill Kastner's article on The Nation. It was the best example that I could find and does a really good job of kind of telling you what the facts are. The United States and Russia teetered toward, a, uh, as the United States and Russia at this point, kind of teetered toward a new Cold War. It is paramount to reflect on the lessons of the old one. The danger of accidental war in a world bristling with nuclear weapons was one of the factors that made the Cold War so perilous. Over a series of cold November nights in 1983, that danger was higher than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Reagan administration had no idea. The British historian and filmmaker Taylor Downing's new book, well, semi-new book, 1983, The World at the Brink, is the most readable and probably best version to date of an episode that holds lessons for today. By the way, I really recommend reading it. During the nadir of Soviet-American relations in the early 80s, the Reagan administration's tough foreign policy and passive military buildup convinced the Soviet leadership that Washington might be preparing a preemptive nuclear strike against Moscow. Moscow. Throughout 1983, an extraordinary succession of events ratcheted up the tension in early November. NATO began an annual war game, Able Archer. It was designed to simulate a nuclear attack on Warsaw Pact targets. The Soviet response was unprecedented. Nuclear-capable bombers and Soviet fighter groups in East Germany and Czechoslovakia were placed on unusual levels of alert. All non-reconnaissance flights over Warsaw Pact territory were grounded. Soviet nuclear submarines raced for the protective cover of the Arctic ice. Because when they're in the Arctic ice, they can't be detected by radar. Western leaders were largely unaware of Moscow's reaction and divided over its meaning after the fact. The CIA insisted the Soviets had been merely rattling the pots and pans to galvanize public opinion against the planned deployment of American Pershing II intermediate-range missiles in Western Europe. Yet Margaret Thatcher's government, which was receiving information from a KGB double agent at the Soviet embassy in London, urgently warned Washington of the danger. Diplomatic eminence George Kanan described the mood in 83 as having the 
unfailing characteristics of a march toward war. As former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates admitted, the world may have been on the brink of nuclear war and not even known it. After years of debate in the Intelligence Committee, a highly classified review of all materials held by the U.S. Intelligence Agency commissioned in 1990 by President George H.W. Bush's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board concluded the same thing. Basically, that the world was really close to nuclear annihilation. Downing first came across a few fleeting references to Abel Archer while working with producers Jeremy Isaacs and Pat Mitchell on the acclaimed CNN Cold War TV series in 1998. Cold War went on to win a prestigious Peabody Award, but Downing couldn't put the Abel Archer crisis out of his mind. The whole story stuck with me, partly because it just seemed extraordinary that the Soviets could have misinterpreted the situation and actually believed they would come under attack, and partly because no one in the West picked up on it. But with more evidence, Downing was kind of in limbo. And then Clinton left the White House. As it happens with every outgoing administration, a trove of documents was classified and released says Downing. Among them was a report by CIA historian Benjamin B. Fisher that offered the best outline of the crisis. Taylor tracked Fisher down in Washington. It was pretty lucky because he had just retired from the CIA and felt he could talk a bit. He could at least tell me the story, Downing said. With Fisher's insights, Downing thought he might have enough material for a television documentary. He persuaded the Discovery Channel in the U.S. and Channel 4 in the U.K. to fund it. The next step should have been to sign on, an, sign on a historian to provide expertise, but Downing couldn't find anyone. Everyone said to us without exception, if you find out what happened, come back and tell us, because we don't really know what went on in November 83. So that's just some backstory, kind of how I came to um, this nuclear war scare. Um, I picked up the book and then I did some some more research and it, it's really interesting. And that's why I'm using this article. It just does a really good job of explaining it. The Holy Grail was that the secret 1990 report by President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. When Jones secured its declassification and released it in autumn of 2015, it confirmed what Downing had already suspected. It absolutely vindicated that where we had two and two and guessed that it made four, we can definitely say that it made four. The war scare was real. So what was the panic about in November 1983? Ronald Reagan had overseen the biggest peacetime military buildup in history, accompanied by a slew of new covert and psychological warfare measures under the CIA direction of Chief William Casey. Pushback against perceived Soviet gains in Afghanistan, Central America, and other hotspots across the globe became the order of the day. Remember, the Iran-Contra affair, anybody? At the same time, the West was convulsed by debate over the depending deployment of American Pershing II intermediate-range nuclear missiles and Griffin cruise missiles that were placed in Western Europe. At one point, over a million protesters took to the streets in Germany alone. The Soviet reaction against the new missiles reflected their fears of a decapitating first strike. 
And that's what nuclear war is really about. If you decide that it's going to happen, you you better be the one to hit the button first. Um, because that's going to be the only thing that could possibly cripple the chance of a retaliation strike. Now remember, these are two superpowers at this point that have more than 1,500 nuclear intercontinental in basically that have over 1500 ballistic missiles basically ready at the push of a button the Pershing twos at least in soviet's mind could reach moscow in less than 10 minutes while the griffins could get there in under an hour evading radar along the way korbachev later described it as a gun pressed against his temple or the Soviet's temple. In the, Krev in the Kremlin, Soviet leader Yuri Andropov had become convinced that the United States was preparing to launch a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union. In 1981, as head of the KGB, he had initiated one of the largest intelligence-gathering operations in history. Operation Ryan, a Russian acronym uh, for Riketno Yadernoi Napedny, or nuclear missile attack, ordered KGB and GRU officers worldwide to ferret out evidence of American preparations for an attack. Those officers, aware of the penalties for slacking on the job, quickly found material to pass on to Moscow. And we're talking about material as simple as, man, the lights are still on in these government offices. Why are they staying up so late? They must be working on something. Or it could have just been them, you know, the janitorial people doing their jobs. But this situation festered for the first two years of the Reagan administration. And then on March 8th, 1983, in the midst of Operation Ryan, Reagan denounced the Soviet Union as an evil empire. 1983, which coincidentally coincides with the second... Uh, with the release of the new Star Wars movie, and the Soviet leadership reacted with alarm. They literally basically called them the Empire, um, which is something that the American public could understand. An ideological speech like that was really unusual for American presidents. Was Reagan warming up public opinion for war? Two weeks later, Reagan announced his strategic defense initiative, dubbed the Star Wars initiative by the press. The Soviets were horrified. They believed that SDI, that strategic defense initiative, would render the nuclear arsenal obsolete. Trying to compete with it would bankrupt the already sclerotoic Soviet economy. For Moscow, SDI posed an ex existential threat without firing a shot. The following month, a secret naval exercise, Fleet X-83, brought three U.S. carrier battle groups up against the coastal waters and airspace of the Soviet Far East. Yeah, because that's a good idea. The U.S. then decided to probe and include a mock bombing run over a Soviet military base on the island of Zeleny. A furious Andropov gave a shoot-to-kill order on future incursions. No shit. Meeting with the American statesman 
Averell Harriman and June Andropov pleaded for the United States government to take a step fucking back, man. Let's not go into nuclear war. Weeks later, suffering from the kidney kidney disease that would soon kill him, the Soviet general secretary disappeared from public view. That's when things got a bit more fucky. Maybe that's what I should call this episode, When Things Go Fucky. On September 1st, a Korean passenger plane flying from Anchorage to Seoul strayed off course and crossed paths with an American spy plane just before blundering into Soviet airspace. Soviet commanders, still smarting from the American incursions earlier in the year with the shoot-to-kill order, sent fighters to shoot down the plane. All 269 civilian passengers and crew perished, among them an American congressman. Soviet leaders insisted publicly that the plane was on a spy mission. Privately, however, Andropov called it a gross blunder. The Reagan administration accused the Soviets of premeditated murder, despite notice from the U.S. intelligence community that Soviet commanders may have mistaken the passenger jet for for a spy plane. In an article the following year, uh, went a little bit further, making a powerful argument that the Defense Department, through its early warning and communications command, control, and intelligence systems, should have been well aware of KL-007's flight path and could have warned it off at any time, but chose not to. That's pretty fucking damning. The other thing that's pretty damning about that is... After a review of the information, it was discovered that it was a mistake that the uh, Soviets, with a matching radar uh, size and image to that of an American spy plane, did think that's exactly what it was and intercepted Russian messages make that perfectly clear. They still went on to say that... uh, the they still want to they still went on to accuse the uh, the Soviets of premeditated murder, and this is where things get really weird. And it bears learning just a little bit more about how weird it actually got. Enter Stanislav Petrov, Soviet officer who averted World War Three. This is how this. St- this is how the story goes, and this is from the New York Times, and uh, it was written by Sewell Chen. Early on the morning of September 26, 1983, Stanislav Petrov helped prevent the outbreak of nuclear war. A 44-year-old lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces, he was a few hours into his shift as the duty officer at Serpukov 15, the secret command center outside Moscow, where the Soviet military monitored its early warning satellites over the United States. When? Alarms went off. And remember, this is only three weeks after the Soviets shot down the flight from Seoul that carried a U.S. congressman in which President Reagan basically said they did it on purpose. It was murder. So three weeks after that, this goes on. 
alarms are going off. The computers warned that five Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles had been launched from an American base. For 15 seconds, we were in a state of shock. Stanislav later recalled, We needed to understand what's next. The alarm sounded during one of the tensest periods in the Cold War. As I said, three weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down a Korean Airlines 007. And this is the same year where Ronald Reagan rejected calls for freezing the arms race and nuclear nonproliferation, at the same time declaring the Soviet Union as an evil empire. The Soviet leader Yuri Andropov was obsessed by fears of an American attack, which led to Operation Ryan. Colonel Petrov was at a pivotal point in the decision-making chain. His superiors at the warning system headquarters reported to the general staff of the Soviet military, which would consult with Mr. Andropov on launching a retaliatory attack. After five nerve-wracking minutes, I can't even imagine the type of nerve-wracking this is talking about. We're talking about five intercontinental ballistic missiles with a nuclear payload capable of devastating cities and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, depending on where they could be landing. So after five minutes, electronic maps and screens were flashing as he held a phone in one hand and an intercom in the other, trying to absorb streams of incoming information. Colonel Petrov decided that the launcher's report were probably a false alarm. As he later explained, it was a gut decision. Literally, almost all of the life on planet Earth was saved by a gut decision. At best, a 50-50 guess based on his distrust of the early warning system and its relative newness, um, as well as the few number of missiles that were launched as he says if the u.s were to launch a preemptive strike it would be massive it wouldn't just be five missiles as the computer systems in front of him changed their alert from launch to missile strike and insisted that the reliability of the information was at the highest level colonel petrov had to figure out what to do The estimate was that only 25 minutes would elapse between launch and detonation. There was no rule about how long we were allowed to think before we reported a strike, he told the BBC. But we knew that every second of procrastination took away valuable time, that the Soviet Union's military and political leadership needed to be informed without delay. All I had to do was reach for the phone to raise the direct line to our top commanders, but I couldn't move. I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan. As the tension in the command center rose, as many as 200 pairs of eyes were trained on Colonel Petrov, he made the decision to report the alert as a system malfunction. I just had a funny feeling in my gut. I didn't want to make a mistake. I made a decision, decision, and that was it. 
Petrov attributed his judgment to both his training and his intuition. He had been told that a nuclear first strike by the Americans would come in the form of an overwhelming onslaught. When people start a war, they don't start it with only five missiles, he told the Post. Thankfully, nobody started a war at all like that. Moreover, Soviet ground-based radar installation, installations which search for missiles rising above the horizon did not detect an attack, although they would not have done so for several minutes after the launch. Colonel Petrov was at first praised for his calm, but in an investigation that followed, he was asked why he had failed to record everything in his logbook. And he later said, Because I had a phone in one hand and the intercom in the other. I don't have a third hand, he replied. He received reprimand. The false alarm was apparently set off when the satellite mistook the sun's reflection off the top of clouds for a missile launch. The computer program that was supposed to filter out such information had to be rewritten. Colonel Petrov said the system had been rushed into service in response to the United States' introduction of a similar system. He said he knew it was not 100% reliable. In his, and in his words, we are wiser than computers. We created them. Cold War tensions persisted in 83, as I will continue to discuss. Uh, the rest of Petrov's story is pretty interesting and deserves a look. Uh, if anybody wants to know more about him, do some research. That's Stanislav Petrov, and he averted a nuclear disaster. I know this is about Reagan, but that story was just too, too fucking cool not to share. So let's continue this look at what else is going on in 1983 on October 23rd. So this would be, you know, uh, about a month after this last incident that I discussed this near, um, nuclear annihilation on October 23rd, a massive truck bomb exploded at the U S Marine barracks in Beirut, Lebanon. It killed 241 American service members. In response to that, U.S. embassies and military installations across the globe went on heightened alert. Two days later, the U.S. invasion of the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada caused a dramatic spike in cable traffic between London and Washington, prompted by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's fury at the American move, and ticked yet another box in the Ryan checklist. Meanwhile, NATO had begun begun Autumn Forge, a massive annual war game stretching from Norway to Turkey that involved approximately 100,000 NATO personnel, including 19,000 American troops airlifted across the Atlantic under complete radio silence for some fucking reason. Also, another interesting note, um, look, do some research on the... Uh, Granada offensive by the United States and how it was perceived as a great victory. Uh, it's just a story that I think deserves some more time, but this podcast is already two plus hours and maybe I'll come back to it at another time. Um, but for now we're going to leave it. But if, if you want to know more about it, it's pretty interesting. Okay. Back to Abel Archer. 19,000 American troops had just been airlifted 
across the Atlantic. Again, under, for some fucking reason, radio silence. Because, yeah, let's not let the rest of the world know why we're airlifting 19,000 American troops. And this was Autumn Forge and Abel Archer. The finale was Abel Archer in which NATO practiced procedures for launching nuclear weapons at Warsaw Pact forces. Are you fucking kidding me? Although it was designed to be a command post exercise involving no troops, they there were enough troops on the ground to sow confusion. Not to mention, it was reported that President Ronald Reagan was supposed to take charge or at least be a part of everything going on. And something that you learn in Downing's book, On the Brink, makes the most compelling case that the Soviet reaction to Abel Archer was extraordinary. Cables coming into the London KGB residency warned that NATO forces had gone on alert and might be preparing for the long-awaited first strike, possibly beginning in 7 to 10 days. KGB officers were purged to go all out in their search for signs of preparations of war. Roughly 50% of the SS-20 missiles were deployed to their secret field stations, MiG-23 fighters on East German runways were placed on 30-minute alert. After the players in the war game moved to defense radio defense readiness condition, DEFCON 1, the highest level of military alert, NATO did what it had never done before. It changed the codes used in every other Able Archer exercise to something totally new for the most sensitive part of the game. The eyewitnesses... Downing, inter- Downing interviewed for the 2008 documentary gave striking accounts. The commander of an SS-20 unit recalls the order to stay in his command bunker in constant radio communication on the highest state of alert. Waiting for orders to launch, he was in contact with Marshal Nikolai Orgakov, the chief of the Soviet general staff, who had descended into the bomb-proof bunker outside Moscow, where he could launch an attack should the leadership in the Kremlin be wiped out in a decapitating first strike. An assistant commander on a Delta-class nuclear submarine describes how his sub moved to its battle station under the Arctic ice and remained in a continuous state of combat alert. The only such instance in his 18-year career. In an SS-19 ICBM silo, a two-man team was joined by the dreaded third man, which is presumed to be a KGB officer, assigned to ensure that any orders to launch would be followed. The deputy head of the KGB residency in London, Oleg Gordevsky, was a double agent who had been working for MI6 for a decade. For, for a decade. He reported that the Russians were truly fucking spooked. In Brussels, a top-level West German NATO employee, Rainer Rupp, himself an agent of East German intelligence, used a burst transmitter and a public payphone to reassure his handlers in East Berlin that NATO was not planning a preemptive nuclear attack. As the exercise continued, NATO commanders initiated a simulated launch of nuclear weapons. Then nothing. The exercise ended. Warsaw Pact forces stood down, and intelligence services on all sides kept quiet about what happened. Well, everybody kind of has a reason to be a little bit embarrassed about it. The Soviets were pretty embarrassed when we were interviewing them because they completely misinterpreted what was going on in the West 
I think they had a little bit of reason to to worry. Um, and I understand it, if uh, it, especially in the era of Cold War tension. It's completely different than it is now. Um, but the West was embarrassed because they completely missed one of the most dangerous moments of the Cold War. And NATO was embarrassed about it because they almost incidentally ignited World War III. And uh, nobody really had much to sell in talking to us. So, yeah, everybody was kind of just, oh, shit, we done fucked up. The National Securities Archive's success in obtaining documents from American Warsaw Pact and some Soviet sources has not been matched in the UK. Britain has, as it is so as it so often does, slammed the door on the release of archives. No documents will be released on the subject. They are all under a minimum of 50 years class D classification because they relate to security. Similarly, KGB and FSB archives in Moscow are off limits to researchers and not likely to be accessible anytime soon. Downing, the author of the book, believes it's entirely possible that Abel Archer played a significant role in the end phase of the Cold War. When Reagan learned of the Soviet reaction, he was horrified. He began to soften his rhetoric almost immediately, beginning with his Ivan and Anya speech of January 1984. The timing was precipitous. Reagan was already thinking about the 1984 re-election campaign. He had, by that time, established his anti-communist credentials. Now he could reach out with a new message. First, with little success to Konstantin Chernenko, then to Mikhail Gorbachev, who matched his determination for change with ideas of his own. And it ended with spectacular results. The lessons from 1983 are clear. Arrogance in foreign policy increases the danger of miscalculation. Dialogue with their adversaries, whether in uh, North Korea or Tehran or Moscow, is essential. Given the renewed nuclear sable rattling on the world stage that we currently exist in, we would be wise to remember a time when a toxic co cocktail of threats, fear, and misunderstanding nearly led us on the path to Armageddon. Ooh, boys, that was one hell of a podcast episode. Again, I'm going to apologize that it took so very long to do. Um, but as you can see by the length of it, this was definitely two weeks worth of research and putting it together. And it's been a lot of fun. Um, it's been exhausting but it's been a lot of fun. So I'll have this one released and next week we'll see the first episode in the history of Rome or the slavery history of Rome. Uh, we'll just talk about its beginnings and then kind of where it went. And then we'll probably follow that up with a few other uh, thematic episodes on Roman slavery. We have a lot of information available to us on that as well. So that should be probably about three episodes, um, maybe four, but we'll see kind of where the research takes us on that. Uh, don't forget to check out my other podcast on science. I will be releasing a new science episode later this week. I am not exactly sure on what, but I will get that done. Um, it's always interesting determining what I should do. 
If anybody has any suggestions for the podcast, please reach out to me on Twitter. That's Seth, the number four nerds, Seth for nerds at Twitter, as well as you can always email me at contact at historyuncensoredpod.com. I appreciate all and any feedback, especially if it's bad. And if it is bad, please tell me why. Um, I can't fix it if I don't know what's going on. And if it's my voice, I can't change that. Or it's too hard for me to change. I could probably talk in a different voice, but it's probably just as annoying as my normal one. Other than that, any, uh, any time you tell anybody about the podcast, it really helps me out. Anytime you leave a review for the podcast, uh, it really helps me out. Share it on social media, and I appreciate every single one of you. If you share it on social media, let me know, man. I will give you a shout out. I will give you a hug, whatever it is that you desire. And if anybody has any interest in appearing on the podcast, let me know. I'm more than happy to do interviews if you are an expert in your field. This has been Seth Michaels with an Uncensored Podcast Network. Network. This has been Seth Michaels with an Uncensored Podcast Network production of History Uncensored. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your week. As always, history remembers. <laughs>